Amen. Will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again to the second chapter of Paul's, the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans, where we will be considering this evening just verse 4. Romans 2, verse 4, you can find it on page 1105 in your pew Bibles. Tonight, as we consider the words of this very important epistle to the churches, which were gathering together in Rome, we're sort of in the middle of an argument within an argument. Paul is stressing the point that indeed all men are fallen in Adam. All men are sinful, even idolatrous by nature, and because of it, all of mankind has fallen under the condemnation of Almighty God. And His wrath is rightly being made manifest against the wickedness of man, the sinfulness of man. And as I said, it's sort of an argument within an argument. The larger overarching argument is that man, apart from the grace of God given in the person and work of Jesus Christ, is under that condemnation of God because of his own idolatrous heart. And so he stands in desperate need of a righteousness that must be foreign to himself. Man is incapable of perfect righteousness, and only perfect righteousness will satisfy God's justified wrath against man's sin, which, of course, necessitates the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've talked about it before, beloved. Paul is giving us the bad news here and setting up the context for the good news. Remember, Paul is laying out the case of God's indictment against mankind. He's made the case for the fallenness of man rather convincingly by focusing in on the pagan culture and society of Rome. He's been pointing to the pervasiveness of the outright, even external wicked behavior that was running so rampant in that society. Paul is making the case that because man has lived as if the God who is, the God who reigns, the God whom they know exists, whom they know that they ought to be worshiping, yet instead they have suppressed his truth and unrighteousness, resulting in in their departure from God. Now God has, in the words of Paul, given them over. He's given them over to their corrupt and wicked hearts and what those hearts most deeply desire. He's given them over to their base sexual desires, finding pleasures in the things that God hates. They have degraded themselves. They are ever spiraling into utter foolishness. And so Paul says, look, the proof is all around you. Men and women are burning in their passions for one another. Doing what they know goes against God's creative purpose for man. And they're not doing these things in a corner or even Under the cover of darkness, they are doing them in plain sight. Even encouraging others to take part and give their approval 
to what they know is outright rebellion against the God who is. It smacks of the lie perpetrated by Satan at the fall, right? That's what he does with sin. He says, come, look, see that it's, it is good. How could it be wrong? Did God really say? And though humanism foolishly calls these degradations in society progress, Paul says it is no progress at all. In fact, it is the opposite. It is acting against reason. It is falling deeper and deeper into brute stupidity. Rather than being a mark of the evolving of the culture around them, it is in fact the devolving of the society around them that has become so evident. The pandemic of sin was much more far-reaching than just sexual desire and behavior. So Paul names this vast list of other sins being done in the light of day to make certain that all men, that every person comes to understand that truly no one is without blame. Beloved, I I mentioned it last week. I trust that that list there hits all of us, doesn't it? Look at it again. Look at what Paul points to that's, that's covered in this indictment. He points to things like covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, slander, hatred towards God, outright rebellion, arrogance, the open and even proud invention of evil, disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness, all of which were being done in the light of day, unashamedly, all of which served to just sure up his point that mankind was indeed living under the justified condemnation of Almighty God. And his wrath against man is witnessed in this manifest wickedness That was all around them. Last week we began looking at the argument within that larger argument. Paul having clearly shown the pervasiveness of sin in a culture that is outwardly and openly rebelling against God now sets his sights back on the church. In this case, back on the Jewish people gathered there in Rome. And as they are all undoubtedly nodding their heads in approval, To Paul's take on the pagans all around them, Paul says, not so fast. This indictment includes even you. Though you may know enough to not be doing these things externally, you are still guilty of them internally. And even doing some of these things yourselves in secret. You prove that you know that these things are wrong when you rightly condemn them in society, when you point them out externally in others, but Almighty God is perfectly holy. And He demands a perfect, holy people. And though you may be just shrewd enough to cover up this kind of sin in your outward behavior, God desires the whole man. He desires inward holiness. 
as well as outward holiness. So Paul says, you too, you too are guilty. All men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so all men are included in this indictment. The only difference between you and them is the mask. Paul says to them, you are at best masked pagans. Knowing the law is not enough. Outward morality itself is not enough. You can be the most respectable looking person you or anyone else has ever known. But apart from true repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, apart from a full reliance upon His righteousness being charged to your account, you are at very best a respectable-looking pagan. And you are so by birth. You were so by nature of your conception. You are so by relationship to your first parents, Adam and Eve, and their fallen paradise. And this is, of course, the bad news, right? God has condemned mankind. He was right to do it. And we have all earned it. And so there is no man who is left with any defense. There's no excuse. And it is that argument that Paul begins to expound upon further in the text which is before us this evening. Listen now as Paul expounds upon the reason for the guilt of the so-called religious ones. The pious ones. The respectable ones. Sitting under the sheer weight of this all-encompassing indictment. Paul begins here in this text to show us the real reason, or the purpose if you will, behind Almighty God's forbearance with us. His goodness towards us. And he warns us here of the danger of ever presuming upon the kindness of Almighty God. So let's look to the Word of God together. I'd like you to follow along as I read again Romans chapter 2, reading this this evening just verse 4. This is the Word of our Lord. Paul says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this evening to be able to come to your word together again. We ask that you would give us wisdom as we do. We pray, Father, that you would give us insight here that we would be not only challenged but transformed by this truth and rightly live in light of it. We pray in all things that we would bring you glory and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this text before us, the Apostle Paul's focus zeroes in on the hardened hearts of those who have set themselves at ease with what could only be called a false sense of security. 
making his case against even the religious ones who are hearing this indictment. Again, in this case, more more than likely the Jews who were also hearing this letter. Paul has already pointed out to them that they are flat wrong if they think that God will only judge outward immoral, immoral behavior. And he begins to expound to them the raw truth that God truly demands the whole of every man, every woman, every child that he calls his own. Not simply externally, but internally. Almighty God will judge the heart. It's not enough to sit back at your ease and simply point to the folly of the pagan as justly deserving the righteous indignation of God, all the while supposing oneself to be loved by God, treasured by God, appreciated by God, and protected by God from his righteous wrath simply because you have a knowledge of the law of God or because you have the blood of Abraham coursing through your veins. So he asked them, do you think that you, the hypocrite, will escape the judgment of God? And we spent a lot of our time last week considering the implications of that. A mask of morality, a great reputation, being a known paragon of supposed virtue will not be enough to avoid the righteous judgment of God. Because God is not fooled. He is not mocked. And he judges more than just the actions of man. He judges the heart of man. So Paul follows that up here by asking in this text a very searching question. One we would most certainly do well to consider ourselves. Have you misunderstood the goodness of God, which is expressed in his kindness, his mercy, his toleration of, and his patience with you? Think about it for a moment. It's really a searching question, isn't it? Paul is not asking them if they have rightly understood the merciful purpose of God in restraining his judgment against their own sin. Paul is asking them that. And he's made it clear to those to whom he now speaks that they know right from wrong. They openly condemn those who do wrong and yet they secretly do many of the same things, taking pride in their knowing enough to simply not do those things in the light of day. But Paul is telling them that they themselves will not escape judgment because of their knowledge. They will not escape judgment because of their nationality. And if they are looking at their lives as being blessed by God, and thinking that God has blessed them because they have not yet been given over, that they had not yet abandoned God in their thoughts, that they had not yet sinned in the light of day like the pagans, that they had not yet bent their knee to some strange God, so God must be pleased with them. 
So Paul says, if that is what you are thinking, then you have misunderstood who God is and you are presuming upon the mercy of God. You understand, you have failed to understand God's forbearance towards you. Do you know what that word forbearance means? It's a word that has fallen out of use in our own vernacular. It means to refrain from the enforcement of something. A debt, a right, an obligation. Something that is due. The thing that is due, all people everywhere because of sin, is judgment. That's the bad news that Paul has been stressing all along. All men are sinners. All men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, all men would not escape judgment. And Paul is bringing them here to the place where they must ask themselves the question. The question that we all must ask ourselves. What is the purpose of God's forbearance with me? You understand, it's, if there is one thing that I know, it's that I am indeed a sinner. And yet I'm here. God has not abandoned me. He's not given me over to the impure desires of my flesh. He has withheld his judgment against my sinful nature for a time. But for what purpose? Again, you can imagine, beloved, the effect of this on this audience. Predominantly Jewish. These were people who undoubtedly knew something of God's forbearance. They have the record of God's dealing with their forefathers, how he led them out of the land of their bondage and sorrow, how though they proved to be unfaithful again and again and again, God's mercy was there, new every morning. And he never removed the remnant of their people from the face of the earth. They have the words of the psalmist undoubtedly embedded in their very minds. God's mercy to Israel will never fail. And so hearing this, they're saying, come on, Paul. God said his mercy will never fail. We sin, but God is merciful. God's mercy is far greater than our sin. Why are you pointing the finger at us? We may not be perfect, but certainly we are not as bad as these pagans that surround us. Look at them. We're God's chosen people. He's pleased with us. And so here we are. And Paul says, look, it is true that his mercy will never fail, but his mercy has a purpose. And that purpose is not for you to make use of it as one would a bank. God is not merciful so that you can continue in sin so that grace can abound. His mercy, His goodness, His kindness toward you has an end in sight. It has a definite purpose. And that purpose is not ever to leave you comfortable With your sin. They have taken the goodness of God and the mercy of God, beloved, lightly. So Paul is telling them that they have given themselves a false sense of security. 
And if they believe that the purpose of God's mercy is to preserve them in their sin, then the truth is they are still dead in their trespasses and sin. They are still very much open to the judgment of Almighty God against them. They have remained in their sin. Knowledge itself will not save them. They must see the real purpose standing behind God's forbearance if they ever are truly to exult in it. Why has God preserved them? Why does God preserve us? To what end? Paul answers that question here, and we would do well to hear him in our own day. It is so that they will be led to repentance. You understand, you know the Bible. You know right from wrong. You know something about the mercy of God. You see it. But if you do not see your sin, the fact that you are a sinner in your own desperate need for the grace of Almighty God, you will never see your need for Jesus Christ. You will never see your need for His righteousness. You will never stop presuming upon the goodness of God. And so you will most certainly die in your sins. Again, beloved, you may find this talk of the bad news here depressing. You may wish that I would cease and desist with reminding you of what you truly are apart from the grace of God. But you see that Paul has a reason for it. It's not to be a killjoy. It's not to keep you from ever being happy. He's not trying to bring you down to no purposeful end. The truth is, beloved, unless you are down, you will never have reason to look up. It is love that drives a faithful shepherd who has been filled with a love for the flock entrusted to him by God to faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul loves his fellow man. He's telling the people of God, please, brothers and sisters, hear me. Do not misunderstand God's goodness, His kindness in giving you breath during a time of ease and a time of blessing. You understand what I'm saying? Do not be fooled by your full pantries, your full bank accounts, your clean and pretty successful children. The truth we have to face is there is judgment coming. Sin will ultimately be judged. And if you are not found cloaked in the spotless garment of Jesus Christ's righteousness, you will certainly be judged for the rags that you wear, regardless of how fine you or anyone else might think they look. That's the truth. You must repent. You must not rest being content in what truly is a false sense of security. This is what makes it such a searching question. Right? We have to ask ourselves, what is it that we rest in? Is our security based in repentance and clinging by faith to the promises that we are given in Jesus Christ? Or are we resting in a bold-faced lie? 
If you are resting in the fact that God must love you because he has not destroyed you or even defamed you by dragging your dark secrets into the light of day, that he has not let your sin be known, that he's not given you comfort and ease, so he must, he must be pleased with you. He must be happy with your level of morality, then I want to tell you, you're resting in a lie. It's a lie. You have a false sense of security and having misunderstood the purpose of God's goodness, His mercy, His kindness, His forbearance towards you, you have presumed upon it. And that is a dangerous place to be. You must know that you are a sinner. This indictment includes you and you must repent. Do you know what it means to repent? It's so confused in evangelicalism today. We believe that repentance is saying that we are sorry. And I know I say it all the time, but in my own family, those two words have become almost bad words. We have so cheapened the concept of sorry today that we think if we just mouth the words, then no one should be able to judge us as being anything less than genuinely sorry. And of course, it's not true, is it? If I make my children stand before their sibling whom they have wronged and mouth the word sorry through their clenched teeth and clenched fists, then really, at best, the only thing I'm doing is calling for a temporary truce, a brief laying aside of arms until the next provocation. That's not repentance. It's not repentance in your relationships with one another. It's it's not repentance in your relationship with Almighty God. Repentance is far more than just saying you're sorry. It's far more than even being sorry. Sorry you let someone down. Sorry you were finally caught. Sorry you did something so foolish. Repentance, as translated here, comes from the Greek word metanoion. It literally means to have a change of mind. And that gets much closer to what Paul is saying here. God's purpose and his long-suffering towards us, his kindness, his mercy towards us, is to bring us to the place where we have a change of mind regarding ourselves and our sin. It's more than just being sorry. It's to make an about-face, to go in the other direction. To have a change of mind and heart. And without it, beloved, it is impossible to see the good news of the gospel. We must come to the place where we not only acknowledge our sin, but we in fact hate it for what it is. We hate that it clings to us and we turn from it when we see it. We have a change of mind. Jesus gets to the heart of this when in the third chapter of John's Gospel, the Pharisee, Nicodemus, comes to him under the cover of night, comes to him in his weakness of faith and hope, hoping to learn what is necessary to be in the kingdom of God. He knows that Jesus must have come from heaven. He must be sent from the Father because of the miracles he himself had witnessed and heard. 
And Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. It implies that what Nicodemus is in the flesh is insufficient. And apart from a recreation, apart from a new birth, a new creature being made in Jesus Christ by faith, he will not see the kingdom of God in anything other than condemnation. Only those who have been born again of both the water and the spirit, that is externally and internally, may see God for who he is and may look up to the cross of Jesus Christ and find life. Nicodemus learns from the mouth of the promised Messiah himself That God is calling his own through his beloved son and only those who look up to him. Who see what is going on at the cross. Who see the resurrection. Who trust him in his word alone by faith. Only those may have life. And he learns the distinction of true repentance from false, which is why I bring it up here. Look at what Jesus says to him in John chapter 3. Consider it in light of what Paul is calling a false sense of security and a presumption upon the goodness of God. In verse 17 through 21, Jesus gets at the heart of genuine repentance. Listen to what he says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Repentance isn't burying your secrets. It's not hiding your sin from the people that God has called you to live among. It's gladly walking into the light to have your sin exposed so that you can look up from the sorrow of that sin and see Jesus Christ in the full light of his glory. Beloved, do you see the point here? To hope to remain outside of the light, to hope that your deeds remain unseen, to never acknowledge them, as belonging only to the darkness, and not to hate them, is quite simply stated to embrace them. Therefore, Paul has shifted his focus here. He says, you, you supposed good ones, you morally upright ones, you who do all of your sinning in secret, is God mocked? Do you know him for who he is? Sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, over all things, sovereign? 
You cannot avoid the light. The light will either ultimately expose who you truly are and your hatred of it, or it will expose who and what you are so that you will look away from yourself, away from your deeds, towards the cross of Jesus Christ. And you will see your sin there. You will see the judgment of God stored up against your wicked heart there, poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ in your place. You will die to yourself and find life in the resurrected and ascended Savior. And you will be reborn, recreated in your union with Him. And you will no longer hate the light. You will not seek to draw the attention towards your good side and frantically seek to divert the gaze of God and men from your bad side. You will have a change of mind and heart. You will no longer seek to protect that part of yourself that you yourself know is darkness. Being recreated, you have new life. And having new life, you have new desires, new joys, new delights. And they center upon the Christ of the cross. They center on the one who paid for all of your sin. They center on him. And not on you. I think too many people today think that repentance is just brokenness. Just constantly moping about, pointing out your failures, continually saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry. That's not it. Repentance is seeing yourself in the light of the truth of who you are according to God's word. Sinful and desperately wicked than looking up from the mire of that sin towards Jesus Christ and recognizing that all of it, all of your darkness, all of your sin, all of your idolatry was punished there at the cross. It's having a change of mind about your kingdom of self and the quest for your own glory and seeking another kingdom altogether in the glory of another altogether. Do you see? Consider the real depths of the mercy of God in what Paul is saying. All your struggle with the flesh, all this having your sin drug out into the light, all of the trials and tribulations in this earthly pilgrimage are for bringing you to this wonderful, peaceful change of mind. That's the goodness of God. He brings you to the end of yourself so that you can begin to see the glories of the gift that he has given you in Jesus Christ. Beloved, I can't say it any clearer than this. If you are content to hide in a cloak of morality and to point out foolishness in others who do not have your cloak, all the while thinking God must be pleased with you, that at least you're better than them. You still love the dark. And you are still clinging to your quest for self-glorification in the old man. But when you see that the only covering that could ever suffice for your hideous self is the spotless, brilliant righteousness of Jesus Christ, you have a change of mind about the light and you run to it, not, not away from it. 
And you are only content to be covered in him and his perfection. The light becomes your joy as you live through Jesus Christ, shining forth the light of his love. And there is no neutrality here. Beloved, you are indeed one or the other. And so I ask you, have you misunderstood God's goodness? Have you presumed upon it? His purpose is repentance and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. There are two, they are two sides of the same coin. And when you see it, you will gladly give up on the rag that you have been hiding under and trade it for the only covering that will ever truly suffice. And you will live as one who so loves the source of that covering that you will yield up your life as a genuine sacrifice of praise. It is both an acknowledgement of sin and a firm proof, an assurance of full pardon in Jesus Christ alone. And it is the only source of peace, the only source of joy that will so transform you that you will remain unmoved as the storms of this life blow, knowing that you belong to the light. Amen? Let's pray.